To give Brother Cyril additional time this morning for his comments to us, we're going to dispense with the reading. Today's class from the book of Hosea is entitled, Israel is an Empty Vine. My dear brethren and sisters, we hope this morning to cover chapter 10, chapter 11, and a little of chapter 12. Whether we shall manage that in the time we have, I'm not quite sure. Chapter 10 then begins with a further examination of Israel's sins, with an exhortation to the remnant, and a few more words to Israel about their captivity. Verse 1, which presents to us a kind of problem. Israel is an empty vine, he bringeth forth fruit unto himself. How can a vine be both empty and fruitful at one and the same time? Israel is an empty vine, he bringeth forth fruit. And of course the key to this is in the words, to himself. Israel was not an empty vine because Israel had been blessed by God in every possible, every conceivable way. They had been made rich by God, but they had squandered the blessings of God upon themselves. And in that sense, they had wasted the blessings of God. They had become an empty vine, but they had used that fruit unto themselves, and they had used that those blessings to make, as you notice, goodly images. The first word of exhortation that comes to us here, of course, is that we can appear to be fruitful, and yet in God's sight, we can be empty. Israel thought themselves to be fruitful. They might very well have appeared to be fruitful to those who looked upon them, those who coveted the blessings they had, but in the sight of God they were indeed empty, they were indeed barren. The outside picture, therefore, is not always the true one. It was Moses, you remember, who, when making his decision, and this is recorded for us in Hebrews chapter 11, saw all the blessings of Egypt, all the panoply of Egypt, all the greatness of Egypt, and reduced that in his mind to be nothing more than the pleasures of sin for a while. And it was Moses, too, who also looked upon the children of Israel, whose backs were bent and bleeding beneath the lash, and he saw in them the people of God. In other words, the eye of faith enables us to see things as they really are, not as they appear. And so Israel, in God's sight, was indeed an empty vine, because all the blessings they had been given had been squandered upon themselves. They had built for themselves graven images. Now, if we look for a moment at Ezekiel chapter 15, we have a delightful little picture of the vine, and we are told precisely what its purpose is. Verse 2, what is the vine tree more than any tree, or than a branch which is among the trees of the forest? In other words, compare a vine with the trees of the forest. Shall wood be taken thereof to do any work? Or will men take a pin of it to hang any vessel thereon? 
You can't use the wood of a vine for anything at all. It isn't timber. You can't even make a stake out of it to drive in the wall to hang a vessel upon, says uh, the prophet here. The sole purpose of the vine is to bear fruit, and if it doesn't bear fruit, it is an utter and a complete waste. Behold, it is cast into the fire for fuel. The fire devoureth both ends thereof, and in the midst it is burned. It is not, or rather, he says, is it meat for any work? Verse 6. As the vine tree among the trees of the forest, which I have given to the fire for fuel, so will I give to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Two lessons then. Firstly, that the sole purpose of the vine is to produce fruit. Secondly, if the vine is found in a forest, it's going to be useless. It does not receive the sun that grows upon the ground. Any fruit it might produce is devoured by the animals, by the birds which are found in the forest, and it has to be given uh, to the fire. And so, God says, I will do unto the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Unless we, brethren and sisters, bear fruit unto God, we are useless. And if we find ourselves mingling with the world in any of its activities, we are useless to God, and ultimately we shall be destroyed. Turn now for a moment to John chapter 15. As an introductory thought to John chapters 14 and 15, let me remind you that we, in these times, tend to use the word ecclesia rather than the word church. We do this because the word ecclesia draws attention to people rather than to the building. Though in actual fact the word church does the same. But the word ecclesia has certain uses, or did have in the Greek language, and because of this we've carried these over into its use amongst ourselves, and we think of ourselves as a group of people. Now, when we come to think of the house of God, however, we tend to think of God's house as a temple. Whereas in actual fact, we ought to think of the house of God as being the people. We should carry this same idea of an ecclesia being a group of people and not being a building when we think of the house of God. It is true in the Old Testament times we read of the house of God as being the temple, just as indeed we can read of a church as being a building. But when we come into the New Testament, the house of God becomes the people. And so in John chapter 14, the Father's house really is that house which is being built and of which the, which the Lord Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. And when he says here in John chapter 14 that there are many abiding places in this house, he is referring to the fellowship we can have in this house, the Lord's house. Verse 23 says, If any man love me, he will come, he will keep my words, my Father will love him, we will come unto him, and we will make our abode with him. Same word as mentions, uh, as we have uh, in verse 2. So the Father's house in John chapter 14 really is the Lord Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone, the apostles and prophets being the foundation, and we ourselves being stones built into it. And there are the many abiding places. 
This is made even more clear in chapter 15, because the figure changes, and whereas the vine had previously been uh, Israel, the vine now becomes the Lord Jesus Christ, and the branches now are ourselves grafted in. And there is the warning, of course, that the Lord God himself, who has grafted us in to the true vine, can break us out and can put Israel back into it. And so again, in John 15, we have this same picture of the vine and taking us, in fact, to the fact that we are a people, a people preserved by God uh, for his kingdom. But back into Hosea chapter 10 now, we bear in our minds the fact that the vine has one purpose and one purpose only, and that is to bear fruit. I'm a master of the vineyard. And if we do not bear fruit to him, to his glory, we are empty vines. It doesn't matter how prosperous we might be. It doesn't matter what impressions we might create amongst other people. It doesn't matter how far we may have gone in ecclesial life. If we are not bearing fruit to God, we are empty vines. The reason for this, verse 2, their heart is divided. Their heart is divided. We have already seen how divisive were the ten tribes, how they divided themselves from the true kingdom of God, how they went on dividing amongst themselves and would do so until they were ultimately consumed. Now James makes it quite clear that a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. We must be single-minded. In the figure of verse 1, we must be bearing fruit to our master. Once we begin to divide our attentions, we shall find that that is the way to reduce. Now shall they be found faulty. He shall break down their altars. He shall spoil their images. Verse 3, they say, or they shall say, referring now to the time of their captivity, for now they shall say, we have no king because we feared not the Lord. Chapter 13, verse 10, God says, I will be their king. Where is any other that may save thee in all thy cities? And I judge it of whom thou saidst, give me a king and princes. God all the time would have been Israel's king and all the time they were turning aside and seeking to elect their own kings. Now, one of the consequences of the divided state of mind, the divided heart of these people, is given to us in verse 4, verse 5. They have spoken words, swearing falsely, in making a covenant. Thus, judgment springeth up as hemlock in the furrows of the field. Remember in chapter 2, how God had in fact said that he would take away their blessings? Well, here is one of the ways in which God would take away their blessings. In the midst of their crops, there would be hemlock. There would be thorns and thistles. There would be the curse of sin growing amongst their crops, and they would see this, and their crops would be reduced, and they would have little value for their labor. But if you turn for a moment to Deuteronomy chapter 29, we find something rather interesting about the word hemlock. Deuteronomy 29, 
Remember the promise of blessings and cursings in 28. Some of the ideas are carried forward into chapter 29. And we read in verse 18, Lest there should be among you man or woman or family or tribe whose heart turneth away this day from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of these nations. Lest there should be among you a root that beareth gall and wormwood. And if you look in the margin, it says rosh. And that is the same word that we have here as hemlock in verse 4 of Hosea. What God is saying in actual fact in Deuteronomy is if you depart from me, if you go and serve other gods, there will be amongst you a root that beareth gall and wormwood. But coming back into Hosea, chapter 10, now that we've got this word rosh provided by the margin of Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 18, surely we have a prophetic announcement here that God is saying to the people that because of their wickedness, because they have chosen to serve other gods, the enemy will come down and destroy them, and the ultimate enemy to come down into Israel is, of course, Rosh, the chief prince of Rosh. It is a reference here to the king of the north who would come down and would see the blessings of the land at that particular time, would think an evil thought, and would come down and would devour them. Verse 5, The inhabitants of Samaria shall fear because of the calves of Beth-Avon. A corruption, or a, shall we say, an ironic comment upon Beth-El, the house of God. Beth-Avon means house of wickedness, and it was the place where the calves were set up. But notice, they shall fear because of the calves, they shall mourn over the calves, they shall mourn and fear because the glory of the calves has departed. Now this is a most remarkable thing, brethren and sisters, that the children of Israel should be afraid because their idols will be taken away, they should mourn because their idols were being taken away. And yet they did not fear the loss of their true God. They did not mourn when they lost the ark. They did not mourn when they lost the temple. When the children of Israel were taken into captivity, they mourned because of the loss of temporal things, not because of the loss of their worship. Now I wonder in our own individual lives, what it is that causes us most grief. Is it because we lose temporal things? Because we fail in examinations? Because the business is not doing too well? Is the real concern we have for the material things amongst which we live or is the real concern we have for the ecclesia of which we are a member and for the real things of God which ought to form the basis and the substance of our lives. All the way through this chapter you will notice there is this empty vine, there is this bringing uh, fruit unto oneself, there is this choosing of material things rather than the uh, turning back to the 
to worship the God who had, in fact, given unto them the blessings which were theirs. Verse 10. It is my desire that I should chastise them, and the people shall be gathered against them, when they shall bind themselves in their two furrows. Difficult little verse. Does it mean the two calves they set up, and they're now worshipping the two calves? Does it refer to the divided state of mind with a foot in each camp? What does it refer to? Exodus chapter 21. The only other place in Scripture where this unusual expression occurs, and here it is translated differently. Exodus 21 and verse 10. Speaking of a man who is betrothed, if he take him another wife, her food, her raiment, and her duty of marriage, he shall not diminish. As a little aside, since we have touched upon this previously, notice, although it was not taught from the beginning that a man should have more than one wife, God does seem to have tolerated man taking more than one wife. But, notice what he says. If he does take a second wife, the duty of marriage of the first wife must not be diminished. Remember, I said earlier, that we ought to be establishing our case with regard to marriage and divorce and such cases upon the first marriage, not upon the second. God does seem to tolerate a second marriage if it is a marriage. But he does not tolerate the breaking of the first marriage. That is the sin. And we're overlooking this. We say to ourselves, all right, we'll receive you back into fellowship. Uh, if you acknowledge that you have made uh, an error, a sin, committed a sin in divorcing your first wife, but we will not bring you back into fellowship if you marry a second time. What God says is, it's that first marriage which is important. And we must spend our time maintaining that first marriage and seeing that that first marriage is maintained in our ecclesial relationships. It applies ecclesially as well, of course, as individually. What I wanted to point out in verse 10 is, it is the expression, duty of marriage, which is the same as two pharaohs. One would wonder why it could be. They're so different in the way they're, they're translated. But in actual fact, that is, uh, is a fact. Now, come back into Hosea chapter 10. And we're looking at verse 10. When they shall bind themselves into their two furrows. The emphasis surely is upon duty of marriage. The emphasis surely is that we ought to be bound unto God as one with him. We should not have a divided state of worship. We should not have divided loyalties. We should not be spreading ourselves and having more than one husband, figuratively speaking. And the whole teaching of this particular chapter is that we must be constant in our service and love and loyalty to God. 
and we must not be bringing fruit into ourselves. And so this verse 10 uh, really, I'm sure, is telling us it is God's desire that he should chastise them. The people should be gathered against them because they bind themselves into their two pharaohs. This duty of marriage uh, is the basis of this understanding of verse 10. Verses 6, 7, and 14 talk about their being carried away into captivity and the things that will happen to them in captivity. Uh, they shall be carried off into Assyria, we are told. Ephraim shall receive shame, and Israel shall be ashamed by his own counsel. The king is cut off in verse 7, and in verse 15, notice the end of verse 15, the king of Israel shall utterly be cut off. And Hoshea was, in fact, taken captive in 721 B.C., as Second Kings chapter 17 tells us. Um, verse 14. Therefore shall a tumult arise among thy people, and thy fortress shall be spoiled, as Shalman spoiled Beth Abel. In other words, the house of God's court. Shalman being Shalmaneser, the one who came in, of course, in this final overthrow when Hoshea was taken captive. So Shalmaneser, in verse 14, spoiled the house of God's court. The thing about which Israel mourned and still weeps as they go to the weeping wall was the destruction of the physical temple in Israel and not the disbanding of the house of God the people themselves, they didn't understand, they didn't appreciate this fellowship they could have had with God at this particular time. Now chapter 11. Or well, should we look first of all very quickly at verses 12 and 13 in chapter 10. Sow to yourselves in righteousness, reap in mercy, break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord till he come and rain righteousness upon you. Sow to yourselves, Jezreel, remember, sow, God sows, sow to yourselves in righteousness, reap in mercy. The first thing we must notice about this expression is that we do not reap in mercy in accordance or in proportion to the way we sow. We do not sow in righteousness and therefore reap a harvest of mercy. But rather is it that because we sow in righteousness, we reap in mercy, we, receive, we reap of God's mercy. Because we break up our fallow ground, it is God who comes and rains righteousness upon us. In other words, we do not earn the harvest of God's mercy. We do not earn the harvest of the reign of God's righteousness. And incidentally, there is a difference between the words righteousness at the beginning of the verse and righteousness at the end of the verse. The reason being that sowing to ourselves in righteousness means that we live in accordance with God's way of life. Righteousness in Scripture is not being perfect. Righteousness in Scripture is acknowledging God's way of life and seeking to tread that way. This is why David could be a man after God's own heart and still 
commit the dreadful sin that he did. David was continually walking in the wrong, in the right direction. He sinned for a moment and turned aside, but he came back and he walked again in the same direction. That is walking in righteousness, walking in God's way of life. Sow to yourselves in righteousness, and those who do this shall indeed reap in mercy. And the explanation, again, I think, comes out in the life of David. He was walking in righteousness. He reaped of the mercy of God. He didn't earn God's mercy. It wasn't the harvest of the way he had walked. But because he is walking in righteousness, he reaps of the mercy of God. Because he breaks up the fallow ground, uh, God rains righteousness upon him. We have another reference here to the uh, God reigning righteousness, God reigning his blessings upon us. Discussion we had yesterday at the Agora. Uh, perhaps we remember that and it comes up again here that God will reign his righteousness upon us. This is the full fruit and blessing of the kingdom of God when God will pour out his spirit in the world upon all flesh and the whole of the world will become a transformed place. Reigning righteousness upon us, a picture of the ultimate kingdom of God. But they, verse 13, had proud wickedness. Therefore they had reaped iniquity. They had eaten the fruit of lies because they did trust in their own way, in the multitude of their own mighty men. So much then for chapter 10. Chapter 11. We have throughout this chapter the care of a father for his child, and under that image we have God's care for Israel. We have restrained judgment, and we have the regathering of God's people. First of all, the care of a father. Verse 1. When Israel was a child, then I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. When Israel was a child. Ezekiel chapter 16. Let's try and get the full picture of this. Let's look at the child. Verse 3. Say unto the people, Thus saith the Lord God unto Jerusalem, Thy birth and thy nativity is of the land of Canaan. Thy father was an Amorite and thy mother a Hittite. In other words, nothing to be proud of in your genealogy. As for thy nativity, in the day that thou wast born, thy navel was not cut, neither wast thou washed in waters of subtlety. Thou wast not salted at all, nor swaddled at all. None I pitied thee to do any of these things unto thee, to have compassion upon thee. But thou wast cast out into the open field, to the loathing of thy person, and in the day that thou wast born. And when I passed by, and saw thee, polluted in thine own blood. I said unto thee, When thou wast in thy blood, live. Yea, I said unto thee, 
when thou wast in thy blood, live. And the chapter goes on to describe how God reared this in lovely garments and bejeweled and takes her to be his own wife. And here in Hosea, we find this same picture. Verse 1, When Israel was a child, I loved him. We can never really understand this, and we must dwell upon this for a moment, because it is so important. How God, looking upon this child unswaddled, wallowing in its own filth, cast on one side and not wanted by anyone, how God, seeing that child, could possibly love the child. And yet he did, he took the child. Now it is the epistle of John, I believe, which describes to us best of all the parts of Scripture what the love of God really is. It is John who tells us that God is love. We might describe a person as being lovely or lovable, if they are, but we cannot describe a person as being love. It is only God of whom we can say God is love. It is part and parcel of his very being, of his very character, of his very nature. He is productive. He is attracted to people that he might do for people what he wants to do to them and lift them up and make them something better than he sees them to be initially. God is love. And indeed he says this to uh, Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 7. We needn't turn to it. He says, I loved you because I loved you. Not because you deserved it. I loved you because I loved you. And in the epistle of John we read now these things about the love of God. In chapter 3, verse 16, that he loves with sacrifice, and his sacrifice is a purpose. Because he loves, he gives his son to die. Chapter 4, verse 10, he says he makes undeserved propitiation for our sins because he loves us. Chapter 4, verse 9, he says he loves us that we might live. Remember? Side 2 Called my son out of Egypt. Just to remind you a few of the salient features. Mizraim, the other name for Egypt, was the son of Ham, and Ham means cursed. And so basically, Egypt means cursed. In the book of Revelation, we read Egypt used as a symbol of all that is evil, tied in, in fact, with Sodom and Gomorrah. The children of Israel in Deuteronomy are commanded not to return into Egypt. Though in the book of Jeremiah we see them deciding against God's counsel through Jeremiah to go back into Egypt. In Genesis we read that Abraham, Jacob and Joseph all went down into Egypt and were all called back out of Egypt into the land. And so with Jesus himself he was taken into Egypt and was called forth. If every one of the patriarchs, and in the case of the Lord Jesus Christ, the type is complete, they are brought forth out of Egypt. There is this separation from that which is accursed, so far as God is concerned. And there is the command to Israel not to go back into Egypt. I needn't build up that exhortation, brethren and sisters. It's clear enough, I'm sure, for each one of you. 
When we come down into verse 8 of Hosea chapter 11, we see the father's dilemma. Israel has gone her own way. They've chosen to elect their own gods and their own idols and to set them up and to make them out of the wealth that God has in fact given to them. There is now the dilemma of this father. Notice who has brought his child along so beautifully. Verse 4, I drew them with cords of a man with bands of love. There we have the father teaching the child to warn, to walk, putting the child in reins and walking along with the child uh, as it goes step by step unsteadily. And God is doing this for Israel, but his reins are cords of love, bands of love. And I was to them as they that take off the yoke on their jaws, and I laid meat unto them. And so we have the care of the father in this chapter. But they go astray when they're grown up, as in fact the woman does in Ezekiel chapter 15 we looked at. And we have this dilemma. How shall I give thee up, Ephraim? How shall I deliver thee, Israel? How shall I make thee as Adma? How shall I set thee as Zeboim? Notice the repetition. How shall I give thee up? Meaning to be destroyed by yourself. How shall I deliver thee? Meaning to deliver you to the ravages of the enemy. How shall I make thee? How will God set them by his own judgment to be as naught? How shall God do this? Turn for a moment to Jeremiah chapter 31. And at verse 20. Because although behind the record in Hosea, we must always think of Gomer and Hosea's relationship to her, we must always think of Hosea here in verse 8 of this 11th chapter saying, how can I disassociate myself from Gomer? How can there be this separation which she has brought upon us by her behavior? And in that we must see also the yearning of God for his people. But in verse 20, Jeremiah 31, is Ephraim my dear son? Is he a pleasant child? For since I spake against him, I do earnestly remember him still. Therefore my bowels are troubled for him. I will surely have mercy upon him, saith the Lord. And there we get the, this dilemma in which God finds himself, to use human terms. Israel has to be sent away. Israel has to be disassociated from the promises because of her wickedness. And yet God is troubled. How can I do this? My bowels are troubled within me. And of course, the answer to this is that he preserves a remnant. Verse 9, I will not execute the fierceness of mine anger. I will not return to destroy Ephraim. The figure of the man who goes through the field to get the harvest and he returns to the field to take up all the gleanings and of course in Israel they were commanded not to go through and take up the gleanings. They were to be for the poor. And what God is saying here, I will not, as I go through Israel in judgment, go through again and pick up the gleanings. I will leave a remnant. And it is that remnant that will be saved. And notice the reason he says this, 
For I am God and not man. In other words, God's chastisement is a remedial chastisement, not a cold retributive judgment poured out upon the people. I am God and not man, the Holy One in the midst of thee. Now, there are a couple of references worth looking at with regard to the Holy One in the midst of thee. Exodus chapter 15. And keep a finger there and get Isaiah chapter 12. Right, Exodus chapter 15. The song which Moses taught the children of Israel to sing. Imagine the setting here. The children of Israel, first of all, were on the wrong side of the, of the sea. The enemy was approaching and they were afraid they were going to be engulfed. They were going to be destroyed by the cream of the Egyptian army. The whole set of circumstances is changed. They are taken through the Red Sea and the army of Egypt is destroyed. And now that they are free on the other side of the sea, now that they are facing the land that God has promised to give them, they sing this triumphant song. He hath triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider hath he thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song. He is become my salvation. He is my God and I will prepare him an habitation. My Father's God, I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. One can imagine the children of Israel singing these words in triumph because they were a people who saw that which was before their eyes. They saw their deliverance, but they didn't see the deliverer. They fail to appreciate God. But notice they say in this, which is rather prophetic, it's a prophetic um, uh, poem, as it were, arranged by Moses for them to sing. They say, I will prepare him an habitation. Now turn over to Isaiah chapter 12. Where the prophet takes hold of that song and uses it in its prophetic sense. In that day, he says, they are the kingdom of God. Though thou wast angry with me, thine anger is turned away, and thou comfortest me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid, for the Lord Jehovah is my strength and my song. He also is become my salvation. So what they are taught to sing after they've got through the Red Sea is prophetic of what the redeemed will sing in the kingdom of God, but there is something missing from the end of verse 2. Something quoted in uh, Exodus which is not to be found in Isaiah. I will prepare for him a habitation. They never did. They thought of the material things. They thought of the house of God as being the temple and not the people. 
as we have correctly put this right in the use of the word ecclesia, but sometimes forget that it refers to John 14 and John 15, that we are part of the household of God. They never did prepare God a habitation. They never did invite God into their hearts to live with and amongst them, and therefore they perished. But you will notice in Isaiah chapter 12, that although the words I will prepare for him a habitation are missing, they're not really missing at all. Because we come down into verse 6, Cry out and shout, thou inhabitant of Zion, for great is the Holy One in the midst of thee. Here is a nation of redeemed, of men and women who have understood that in the Father's house are many mansions, that we can be a part of the Father's house, which is being built up stone by stone, that we can seek the Father's fellowship day by day and his blessing and feel this peace in our lives. Those who do this make a habitation for God. We will come unto him and we will make our abode with him, is what Jesus says with regard to the man who loves God and seeks to serve him. We will come and make our abode with him. I will prepare for him a habitation. Great is the Holy One in the midst of thee. And coming back now into Hosea. These are the things that we find uh, in this chapter, chapter 11, which we're looking at. And verse 9, what they didn't understand in those days was that God was in their midst. They had put him on one side and taken a king, Saul, and the kings which followed in his line. They had traded in the God of this great universe for a human king. But God says, nevertheless, I am God and not man. And therefore I will not raise up all the fierceness of mine anger. I will not return to destroy completely. There will be a remnant. I will not enter into the city. Verse 10, we are taken, of course, into the parallel time of the Joel chapter 3. He shall roar like a lion. The time will God will roar out of Zion when all the men of the world will tremble, when God will see his redeemed and they will be saved. They shall tremble as a bird out of Egypt at the time when God will roar in the earth. The children of Israel will once more have been driven down into Egypt, the west of the land, but they will tremble as a bird out of Egypt when God calls them forth for the last time into their own land to make them a people in the midst of that mortal kingdom which will be established because there will be a center, mortal Israel, amongst the mortal kingdoms of the world and the saints, those who have been redeemed, who are the sons of the living God spoken of by Hosea in chapter 1, will be those sent out by God 
throughout the whole of the world to ensure that his name and his purpose is completely established. I'm going to conclude with just a comment or two on Hosea chapter 12, and I shall make no apology if I go over time, because you have robbed me, of course, of an hour this morning, and if you don't have your coffee time, well, that isn't really my fault. <laughs> Hosea chapter 12. Um, I would have liked to have spent a lot of time in this, but we haven't got it. Um, first of all, verse 4. You've got this Ephraim feedeth on wind. You mothers will know what this means. When you have a child that gets wind, what a sleepless night you have because of it. Well, that is the situation here. Ephraim has fed on wind and has caused no end of trouble and concern for God and, of course, for themselves. He increases daily in lies and desolation. But come down to uh, verse 4. Yea, he had power over the angel Jacob, this is, of course, and prevailed. He wept and made supplication unto him. He, God, found him in Bethel, and there he spake with us. I want you to notice his word carefully. God found Jacob in Bethel. Jacob was lost. Jacob was going the wrong way. Jacob was the supplanter. That's the meaning of his name originally, isn't it? Supplanter. Jacob was going in the wrong direction. And his name is changed ultimately to Israel, meaning prince with God. Now the children of Israel had followed Jacob not Israel. They had followed Jacob in that they too themselves were supplanters. They were like Jeroboam in the meaning of his name, enlargers, making themselves bigger, supplanting to get more. But God found Jacob in Bethel. And to put this correct, Jacob did not wrestle with an angel. The angel wrestled with Jacob. Very important point, we should get the text right. God found Jacob, God wrestled with Jacob, and ultimately Jacob became Israel, a different kind of person. But you notice in the end of verse 4, there he spake with us. What God said was to Jacob. But the prophet says, it wasn't, it was to us. We turn now to First Peter, First Peter chapter 1. First Peter chapter 1. And the importance of this is that in verses 10 to 12, we read these words. Of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, 
who prophesied of the grace that should come, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify, when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should, be, should follow, unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us, not unto themselves, but unto us, did they speak. Now, again, Matthew chapter 22. Matthew 22. Verse 31. But as touching the resurrection of the dead, have ye not read that which was spoken unto you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac. The words weren't spoken to us at all in the Old Testament, if you just read the text as it is, but by inspiration we are told the words were spoken to us. Now back into Hosea. What Hosea is telling us here is this, that all that happened unto Jacob was there for our ensample, and the words that were spoken to Jacob have an eternal power and relevance. They're applicable to us. And so with all the words of Scripture. Now one of the questions in the Agora earlier in this week was, uh, do we really have priests in our midst today? Can we really liken our ecclesia to, uh, to a temple? Well, of course we can't. But what we must cultivate the habit of doing is seeing that these words are spoken to us that the relevance of the principles which are here in scripture are for our benefit we must not think here of Hosea and of the history of the ten tribe kingdom only it is our responsibility to take what is being said here as being personal it is being said to you it is being said to me and notice now he goes on to say he found him in Bethel and there he spake with us, Even the Lord God of hosts, the Lord is his memorial. As if to say that memorial name which was given in the days of Moses was given to us for our benefit. Therefore turn thou to thy God, keep mercy and judgment, wait on thy God continually. But I'm not going to rush this. And I'm not going to steal any more of your coffee time. We will, God willing, tomorrow pick up this memorial name and have a look at it. And we will spend the majority of our time, God willing, tomorrow, which is our last session, with the wonderful exhortation of chapter 14, which in fact gathers together all the threads of the whole of the book of Hosea and presents them to us in a tremendous word of exhortation.